Uh, Ruth, there's just so much beauty in here. I've spent a lot of time in this uh, and uh, uh, over the years, and, uh, and I just, I love Old Testament narrative. I think if you're a Christian, there's a lot that you can read in here. There are themes that, that Ruth sets up and foreshadows for us um, that, are, that, are, that are really uh, fulfilled in the New Testament. But if that's, uh, if that's not your thing, I think uh, anyone who, even if they aren't a Christian or someone of faith, uh, you can't not, I truly believe you can't not read the book of Ruth, even as just a historical document and story, and not say this is a magnificent piece of literature. It is phenomenal what's here. Uh, and today we're going to get into some of that. Um, I wish we could go at depth, but uh, we all need to have lunch. So I'll cut it short and just give us the overview of what's here. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. We are going through a series here in the book of Ruth, as you can see on the screen there. God's love on display. Now, God's love is the English way of saying this, but we have not backed down from this during this series. Uh, the word in the Old Testament that's used oftentimes is the Hebrew word chesed. Uh, chesed is the, the steadfast, loyal love of God. It's, it's this richness. I think, I think just, uh, just loyal love of God is, is one aspect of it. There are several. We've developed this uh, series here through Ruth into six avenues or six views of that chesed love of God. And so uh, we looked at first, uh, as we read through Ruth 1, uh, we looked uh, through Ruth's lens here, and, uh, and we saw that, that the steadfast love of the Lord is a loyal love. The chesed love of the Lord is loyal. Uh, just as Ruth is loyal, she puts on display his loyal love. Uh, last week, we read the exact same text, Ruth 1, and we looked at it from Naomi's view, and we saw that God's enduring love is there, even if, like Naomi, you don't think it is enduring anymore. His love is there. His love endures for, forever. Psalm 1, uh, 136 repeats this over and over and over again. His steadfast love endures forever. Today we're going to be looking at the idea of God's chesed love. The idea of the whole series is that God's love is the behavioral norm for God's people. Is that, that what we're looking at, what Ruth does, what Naomi does, and now what, what Boaz will do in chapter 2 of Ruth, is not this, this, this super erogatory. It's not this above and beyond call of duty of the Christian, but it's, 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 it's totally normal. It should be just the normal thing for us. And we're going to see how Boaz does something incredible just as though it's another day in the office. And I love how this, how this develops. Uh, the author here is especially pointed in his, in his wording. Uh, the Spirit uses themes here to draw, us, uh, to draw out hints of Christ. But I want to stay in Ruth 2 today and really develop what the view of Boaz and Ruth are of God and how that changes how they act and treat one another. So uh, we're, going to look at, uh, we're going to look at the abundant love of the Lord. We're going to look at it as literature expresses itself in three different scenes. These three different scenes are, uh, are uh, the first scene is going to be chancing upon a redeemer. The second scene, we will, we will hear of the redeemer's abounding love. And then our third scene is going to be Ruth abounding in the redeemer's love. All of this, if you remember one thing, is here is the point. Live bountifully. In the abounding love of God. Live bountifully in the abounding love of God. What does that mean? Well, we're going to find out. So we'll look at, a, we'll look at a chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Chancing upon a redeemer. I'll read uh, verses 1 through 4 right now. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. 
And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come upon uh, part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And now, behold, came a man, uh, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Now, I want to pause right there. There's, there's a ton of setup here. So what happens here? Naomi had a relative, and, and it, was, uh, it was Boaz. Ruth, and, and, uh, Ruth went out to glean. Naomi says, okay, go for it. She happens upon this field, and then Boaz shows up. Okay, so we get that in the narrative. It's great. I'm going to slow this down because this is, uh, this is like an incredible amount of sarcasm, an incredible amount of irony that's written into this. Okay, I'm going to back up here uh, to uh, chapter 1, verse 22. It's just the verse right before we start here. We're going to think of narrative. This is a narrative. We are, we are reading a story as it flows, right? So this whole thing goes down with Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. And finally, Ruth out chesed's Naomi. And, Ruth, and Naomi gives up and says, fine, we're going to go to Bethlehem and you're coming with me. So, verse 22, Naomi returned and Ruth, uh, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. If we go, if we know, if we understand the story here, and I encourage you to read it, it's a short story, read it. It starts with famine. There's famine in Bethlehem. We're going to Moab to get some food. We end up getting some husbands. Everyone dies. It's not good. Food comes back in Bethlehem. So this is the end of chapter one. We're going back for the barley harvest. Hey, it's barley harvest. God's return. His presence is here. Naomi's saying it's not, but it is. It's back. We're here. We want to get some food. So where would we go next? They, they come back and mission accomplished. We're ready to set foot on getting the food. Chapter 2, verse 2 picks up on that. And Ruth, the Moabite, said uh, to Naomi, let me go into the field, right? That makes sense. Hey, we got back. The barley's here. The next thing that logically flows in the narrative is, and now I'm going to go glean, right? There's verse 1 there, though. What are we doing there? This is fantastic. Uh, uh, why do we need to know this? It's totally interrupted. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Why do we even care about this guy? Like, we should ask this question. Well, what, where did that, that is, why'd you write that there? That's just ridiculous. Just leave it for like four or five verses later when he shows up. It's because, because this is literature. It's not just this, this, this Bible that we read Bible stories of. This is actual literature, and the people that wrote this were fantastic, and not even really fantastic. They were inspired by the Spirit to make this thing work. What's happening here is now you are going to read chapter 2 thinking, who is Boaz? He's doing that to the readers. We are supposed to be thinking of Boaz and wait, he's the connection to, he's their way back. He's the way back to be redeemed. They have famine, he's going to bring them fullness. We're supposed to, as readers, know this, but it's an aside. Ruth doesn't know this. Ruth has absolutely no idea. So we get in on the joke. We get in on the irony, and we're going to see how Ruth has absolutely no idea, but somehow, by chance, stumbles upon God's direction here. So Ruth says to Naomi in verse 2, Let me go in the field and glean among the ears of the grain, in whose sight I shall find favor. I wonder whose sight I'm going to find favor. If you have a Bible that you're okay with writing in, if you want to write in our pew Bibles because you don't care, shame on you, but you can. Um, if, you have, if you have some notes or whatever, Whose sight I shall find favor? That's going to come up a couple times. She's asking this question. Basically, what Ruth is doing is she's saying, I'm going to close my eyes and throw a dart and see what field I land in. And we'll see who doesn't throw the dart back. So she goes out to, 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 uh, to glean. She has no idea where she's going. She has no intent. Her purpose in this entire chapter is to get some food. She's hungry. 
And Naomi says, yeah, that's my point too. Go, my daughter. That's all she says. She doesn't give a big long speech here. She says, just go. Let's get some food. So she set out. She went and gleaned to the field after the reapers. She happened to come along the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Ah, there we go. This guy, he comes back here. What? Wait, we already know. She has no idea. The Hebrew there actually reads, she happened to come along. It means, it says not simply, she chanced upon this. This is where this language comes from. She chanced upon the field. But it actually reads, she, her chance chanced upon the field. She wasn't lucky that she happened to be over here. She was crazy lucky, like so painfully lucky that this is sarcasm here. It's not luck at all. The author is writing this in a way that's saying, oh, it was lucky, but you can hear in the sarcasm, it's not lucky. This is like Wes Anderson film, dry humor. Like he is rolling out the fact that we should be hearing in big letters, there is no luck involved in this. She just happened to land at the one guy that could redeem her. Wow, that's crazy. Verse 4. And she, as she was working, behold, ha, behold, Boaz shows up. And then he was there. This is crazy. What's the point? I'm, I'm being really sarcastic. The, 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 the text is being really sarcastic. Don't ever think that God has abandoned the plan. That's the point. Man, you get to the end of chapter 1. Naomi has lost all hope. Is God able to help me? Yes. Is God willing? No. He is definitely against me. He cannot help. He, do, well, he can help. He does not want to help. And now we find out that even though Naomi is sitting here in her bitterness, and Naomi is getting after it, trying to just squeak out a living, the Spirit has chosen that the author of this Bible bring us into a tension that rides through all of our lives and all of Scripture. It's this tension between the, the, the providential direction of God. He's got it. He's driving it there and human activity. At no point can we say that Boaz and Ruth and Naomi are just these puppets or these, these robots that are just, just being puppeteered so that we can read this great story. They're, they're making decisions. They're making decisions that are kind of weird and desperate. They're actually making real decisions that real people make in real times of suffering or in of abundance. There's nothing crazy about them. They're not, they're not special people that were, that were chosen. They're just special in that they understand the said love of God. And somehow through their decisions that they're making on their own, God's providential care and his plan is riding through this. Now, you can chase this all the way to the end because this gets way better than just getting a meal and stop being hungry. By the end of this, we're going to see a magnificent glory that actually lands on our doorstep and affects us today with how abundant God's love is to Ruth. God's providential care is riding behind this entire story even though independent human beings are making decisions on their own. It's a tension. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around, but it's a real reality and a tension that God invites us to embrace. And once we, and once we embrace that and we live in that, we are on our step towards living bountifully in his abounding love. So don't ever think that God has abandoned the plan, whatever, whatever uh, you're in right now, whatever situation, whatever uh, small, uh, small uh, inconvenience, whatever, whatever big decision. Maybe you're in a season of intense suffering and lament. God has got it. Uh, God, uh, God wants to and can help those who cry out to him. God rewards the faithful with his protection. So I want to look at this. I want to look at this idea of the Redeemer, chancing upon a Redeemer. You and I uh, would never have thought that we would happen, just like Ruth. 
We would never have imagined in our wildest dreams that we would happen across a redeemer. She does, and we do. What's going on with this redeemer? Verse 8 through 16, we're going to see three ways in which the redeemer's love is abounding. So we're going to look at the the abounding love of the redeemer. In verse 8, we read of a comforting promise. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have not I charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what what the young men have drawn. Uh, He doesn't directly say stay in this field, but he's kind of doing that by negation. He's saying don't go to any other field. I mean, we can read this. As Christians, we can hear some of this. Maybe this isn't exactly what Boaz is doing right here. But he's saying, this field is where you get your sufficiency. This is where you get your, uh, your provision. This is where you will be safe. This is where you are to live. If I want to put it in different words that help make a connection here. This is the one way, truth, and life to your living. This is where you are as the people of God. Stay here, Ruth. I promise you this. God gives us that same promise. Stay here, Ruth. This is where you are meant to dwell and work. Be here. And so he gives this promise to her. Verse 10, she responds wonderfully. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you may take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Man, that, that should be the cry of us. Like, when we take, uh, when we take a, a communion here, that's like what we are saying to God. Uh, we say, we don't, we don't earn this, this privilege. We don't earn this status as people of God just because, like, we worked really hard, right? Like, she didn't do anything here. Uh, we don't do that either. So, so it's, it's, it's weird for us to receive such a blessing as it's weird for her to say, you know, Ruth be like, yeah, it's about time, Boaz, right? Like, I've been, like, hustling here, gleaning. Can you just bump me up here and give me just a, just a, a security plan uh, that, that it's going to be okay? She's not saying that. She's saying, whoa. Even this little bit. He's not giving her a ton of food. He's not giving her the first crops. He's still letting her do her work. And she is responding in incredible gratitude and thanksgiving. What have I done to deserve this? She's showing us that as God's love is abounding on us, that we should return gratitude and thanksgiving. Why have I found favor in your eyes? I'm a foreigner. I'm estranged from you. Why do you reach out to me? What have I done? Man, that's the right heart of someone who follows God reverently. Boaz, then, instead of saying, uh, because I'm awesome, which is what my Bible would say. Uh, the author said something much better. Um, he, uh, he, he wrote a lot more here. So let's read it. Boaz answered her and said, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since your death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He does not say because I'm awesome. He says because God is bountiful. God has extended his abundant blessing to me. I'm not generous. I'm just a steward. God gave me a whole bunch of stuff and now I'm just going to realign that and shuffle it off to you. That's what his response is. And he says, I have seen your chesed love for Naomi and the dead. I have seen this. You understand God. You get this. You are reflecting his love to people around you. I've seen it, and I'm just a man. Surely God has seen this. 
And surely God, here's where he answers Naomi's problem. He says, surely God can and will reward you for your faith. Man, that's incredible. I mean, he's like making a promise for God, not because he has, he has ownership of God, but because he believes so strongly and confidently that God is who he says he is, and he is a God of abounding chesed love. And he says, surely, wait it out, he will fully reward you. Now, here's a fun thing here. This full reward is going to happen. Now, spoiler alert, she's going to get fed. She's going to have provision. She's going to have her status elevated to really high. We'll get to that in a moment. By the end of this, she is going to be brought into the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Okay, so full reward is coming. Sorry if I just ruined that for you and then you could have made that connection. Now you can read and be like, aha, I see it, even if you didn't before. Now I've told you how you should respond. You must say, aha, once you get to the end. Uh, It's amazing. He doesn't know he's saying this right now, but the providential hand of God is driving us there. He says the full reward of God is there. He's abounding in love. And God is making that happen as we speak because it just flips right in the next verse into doing that. The Redeemer's abounding love is marked by comforting promise. It is also marked by glorious, satisfying provision. Verse 14. So the day goes on. This is still the same day. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here. And eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and passed, uh, and he passed her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. So she was satisfied and then some. If that doesn't say abounding love, I don't know what says abounding love. She had an abundance there right in front of her to prove that God is already giving you a full reward here on earth. God is showing you that he has got it and he will take care of you. So on the one level, we live in two kingdoms here. Uh, we live on a kingdom of God, we, or a, a, a city of God, a kingdom of, of God, and a kingdom of man. On this human level, on this kingdom of man, this, this where we're living right now here today on one level, we see that she's hungry and she gets food. Now, we're going to see Jesus take this in, in a moment and say, if you're hungry for the right things in the kingdom of God, if you're hungry for the spiritual things, I am that bread of life that will satisfy you. And so he gives her what she needs immediately. She came to Bethlehem because she was hungry, and now she's not hungry. That's something that we can do, we can help with. Oftentimes we do this with people around us. We say, well, God feeds the hungry, so we should feed the hungry. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. It's not all that Ruth 2 is showing us here. Because in order to, because otherwise it would say, come and eat here, eat some bread, and then she ate, and then she went back to work, right? But it gives us this whole long description of then she moved here by the reapers, she was sitting here. What's happening there? God, in his abounding love, doesn't just give us an immediate thing. He doesn't give us band-aids to solve things. He changes our situation. That's what Boaz is doing. He's changing her status. Now, if you know me or you know me for a while, you know I like diagrams. Today, you get one. And it's really tiny. Um, so you don't actually need to know everything that's, uh, that, that's there to read um, you just need to know that there are 16 categories, uh, and it's uh, really great, and it's well, it's just perfectly formatted. I just love this stuff, and this is my, this is my thing, diagram. So what is it um, about this? What happens here at this dinner table is something amazing. Uh, he takes this status. This is the social structure of, of their time and day. This is, uh, this is from a scholar, Paul, uh, Paul Miller, and he, uh, he outlines to make this point uh, so, so wonderfully. 
when they go to this mealtime, this is what they're thinking. This is how they're thinking. They don't have the same hierarchy as we do. We have like upper, middle, and lower class, something like that. And they have 16. Um, so at the top, you get one, two, three, four. Uh, king or judge, tribal leader, clan leader. And now here we go. I'll highlight it. There you go. That's why you don't need to read it. Um, uh, number four is a clan subgroup leader. This is Boaz. This is where he's at. But remember, first, chapter, or first couple of verses in Ruth. This is the time of the judges where there was no king and everyone did as what they wanted. The king, that one's gone. So, so we really have two, three, and four are one, two, and three. Boaz is third in the land as far as authority. He's third in the land as far as, as status. He's really high up there. So he's the one that just happens to show up here. And he's the one that then goes out. Why would he go out? He shouldn't go out. He has service to go out and tell her, like, go eat some food. He goes out and says, why don't you come and eat? Okay, let's find out where Ruth is. So if we chase this down, some of you with super good eyesight will have, uh, will have done that. All the way down at the bottom, really, that's all you have to go. Uh, 16, female foreigner. That's Ruth. Number three goes to number 16 and says, why don't you come and eat? Okay, as I'm walking by homeless people on the street, I maybe on a good day give them some money. Maybe on a really good day give them a hamburger. Most of the time, don't. Isn't that how we live? This is ridiculous even in our time for him to go to her and say, come and eat. For him to come and say, come sit with us. So when he says, come sit with us, I'll, uh, I'll speed this up here. here if we can, uh, right here is where he is asking her, right here at 11. He's asking her to come and join that level right there. He's boosting her status so she can have access to food. Throwing a couple bucks to a homeless person is not what he's doing. He is actually changing her situation so that she can have access to eat more. So she has abundance to take home. He is doing something at a structural level for social justice here. He is using his clout to change her situation. He's not just giving her some food. He's not just inviting her because she's hungry to come take a break with all of us. He then addresses her in verse 8. He says, come my, if you can read there, come my daughter. He just boosted her another one. And then he says uh, later on in verse, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, chapter 3, verse 18, something around there. She then becomes his wife. Uh, that's chapter 4, verse 18, sorry. 4.13. She became his wife. She is right here. This is, if you can read there, after I scribble on everything like crazy, she has hit the ceiling of where women can go in this society. She starts with a husband at the top of society for women. She loses everything and moves out of town to go to the very bottom. That's where she's at. At the, top, at the, beginning, of, at the beginning of Ruth 1, she's at the top. At the end, she's at the bottom. Ruth, in one sentence, just brings her right back up. Sounds like a full reward to me. That's incredible. But what's incredible about this is not simply uh, uh, that he stops there. He makes sure that that structure remains in place. We'll read on here, and then we'll kind of look at Boaz and his amazing example for us. Verse 15. There is a comforting promise. There is a glorious, satisfying provision, and there is sovereign protection. In verse 15, they get done with all this. After, after Boaz has just plowed through the status quo, when she rose to glean, when Ruth rose to glean, Boaz said, hold up. He said it to his men, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also, pull out for, some, for her some bundles and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. 
Let her do whatever she wants. Don't rebuke her. Stack the deck so she gets way more. And don't touch her. It was okay. It wasn't, there was no protection there for her when she's going. He's just saying, stay right here. And now, in his authority as third in command, he's saying, I'm going to change the laws here. I'm going to fight for justice at a systemic level, and I'm going to change this. Y'all can't touch her. This is incredible. This is, this is, this is just amazing in their context. How often does that not happen in our context? Like, how often do we, the middle or upper class in our thing, not, not reach out and do these kind of things? This takes work. This takes legal work. This takes advocacy. This takes, uh, just at the end of it, a, a real understanding of the abounding love of God. That's where it goes. It doesn't take much. We don't have to change all of these laws of the land. He's just saying, hey, here, my field, I do what I want. My house, my table, why don't you come over for dinner? Why don't we just do that? Hey, you, you seem like a lonely neighbor next door. Why don't we just hang out? Why don't we just talk? He is in control of what he has, and he's using what he has to bring God's justice and God's abounding love to Ruth. I'm not done with Boaz because he is phenomenal. What do we observe in Boaz? I think it's easy for us to uh, get to the end of chapter 2. We'll get there. Where, where Naomi says, ha-ha, he's a redeemer. And then instantly we're like, oh, springboard, Jesus. Everything Boaz does, Jesus is going to do better. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that, that is there. But if we stay in the Old Testament and we, and we don't let the, the New Testament flatten it, we'll get there. God's coming. Jesus is coming. There's something that we learn about Boaz in, in the midst of this. Boaz, as he's referred to here, what, what is his character? What is his action in the midst of his situation? His character is, uh, is, is given to us um, in verses 1 and verses 4. The Hebrew hears that Boaz is, in verse 1, an Ishkabor, a, a, a great man, and a man of excellence. This Ishkabor is likened to guys like David. He is, he is this, this, this exemplary guy. Look at him and do what he does. That's, that, that's what the, Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew ear is hearing and doing. He is the guy. He's your example. I think our Bible is here. ESV translates it to a worthy man. This guy has character. He is incredible. And so we know that. We've been told that. So we expect this from him. Verse 4, Boaz is a godly employer. He greets his workers with, the Lord be with you. And then they exchange the, the, the same back to him. The first word of his day, his first interaction, he walks in to, to the office and he speaks to his employees the first thing we're going to talk about is God. God has abundantly given us this job. God has abundantly given us this relationship. God is going to abundantly use this here. How many times do we walk into our workplace and make God be the first thing and remind ourselves that God is the thing that's abundantly provided this situation for today? Not too often, but Boaz is doing that. See, and then in, his, in how he deals with Ruth, there are no legal requirements to display God's chesed the way that he has. Now, if you want to take notes, if you want to look, if you want to do some of the research, it's fascinating. Uh, this idea of gleaning. There are laws about gleaning. Leviticus 19, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 24. They basically say, leave some stuff behind. Don't go pick up, uh, don't go pick up whatever you leave behind. Be diligent in your first go. Don't do a second run through. Uh, and also, leave some, uh, don't, don't plow everything in the, in the edge of your field. I mean, it's just like a theological system of charity right there. Like, it's just built into the system of how God wanted it to work. 
But it doesn't say uh, you, you can't, uh, it doesn't uh, prohibit uh, attacking them. It doesn't prohibit, uh, or it doesn't uh, command uh, to bring them to the table and feed them. Like, that's definitely not, the, definitely not there. It doesn't say you should uh, give them some bread or some, some grain, you know, to take, take home with them. It doesn't say that you should then tell everyone to, to, to leave them alone and provide this protection and, and allow them this different status. That stuff is stuff that Boaz is making up. He's going beyond what the Levitical laws is. So he meets it and he goes. And, and, and if we want to say, uh, you know, even more, this is the time of judges. <laughs> Everyone did as he wanted. So what we can get is this, no one's enforcing this. Boaz wants to extend the abounding love of God. Boaz wants to do this because everyone did as he pleases, right? He is delighting in extending this. So what Boaz does here is he plows through the status quo so that he can help the helpless. I mean, I haven't said it too much, but like we should constantly be convicted of this, that we don't do this well now in America in 2018. We do not plow through the status quo to help the helpless unless it becomes trendy. And then it's something totally different. What's striking about how the Spirit inspired this account to be written is that while it seems like Boaz is above and, is the above, above and beyond example of virtuous mercy and compassion, it doesn't talk about it in that way. Like, it's not like, hey, it says, behold, Boaz, that's sarcasm. It's not saying, this guy's amazing. It's saying, this guy's normal. This is what you should be doing. This is just completely normal. In verse 5, Boaz He's just standing there with the other foremans or whatever. And he's like, who's that young lady? In verse 14, he says, why don't you just come and eat? That's it. We don't have to do anything crazy to do what Boaz is doing. We don't have to do anything crazy to extend the said love of God to those in need. Who are you? Why don't we go get some food? He's not ignorant of what he's doing. He's not ignorant of the fact that, he is, that he's just destroying this, this status quo. He just understands that God's chesed love is the behavioral norm for God's people. This isn't radical Christianity for him. This is just Christianity. This is just the norm. And this is my prayer for us as a people, that this be our norm. That people can come and say, I am blessed when I'm here. I am, I am receiving from these people the gifts of God through his love. It may come in the form of, uh, of, of, of a room for the night. It may come in the form of some furniture. It may come in the form of, of, of helping out with a, with a rent check or a utility bill. It may come in the form of uh, just some silence in a time of lament. There are many ways that we can extend the abounding love of God. It could be out of the workplace. Something's tough and say, hey, can I just do a quick prayer for you? Or even ask for prayer. Sometimes it's that level that people have never heard. It's so simple. It's just normal for Boaz. We're not given this thing as, as this big, you know, big uh, down from heaven. This is the greatest expression. He's saying, just do this. It's pretty easy. So that's his character. His context is that, that he could do whatever he wants, and he does. And he doesn't make a big deal of it. So that's how he extends the abounding love of, of God. 
The Redeemer's abounding love is a comforting promise, a glorious provision, and sovereign protection. We'll finish off here by looking at Ruth and how she receives this. Abounding in the Redeemer's love. This is the other, this is the, the, the bookend of that crazy sarcasm that we've started with. Because I would guess at this point, when I'm reading Ruth, I want a love story, and I'm saying, I know where this goes. This is fantastic. They're starting something strange and almost kind. He was fierce and he was coarse and I'm refined, right? The beauty and the beast is coming in here. We're going to get hitched here. This is great. Verse 17. So what does she do? She goes off into the sunset dreaming of Boaz. Nope, that's wrong. Uh, Verse 17 says, so she gleaned in the field. She just went back to work. Man, that is so not the love story I wanted. So she goes back to work. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out, uh, brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. She now is extending the abounding love. It's catchy, isn't it? Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where'd you glean today? And by where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. The man's name uh, who I worked with today was Boaz. She has no idea who Boaz is. Like she still has no idea. She knows his name's Boaz. She doesn't know who he is. Because verse 20, then Naomi says, ha light bulb. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, the one of our redeemers. Now, Ruth and Naomi are on board with where you and I have been this whole hour. Like he knows all the pieces are coming together. So here it is. Now we get dressed up, right? Now we go out on the date. Now we're going to do this. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my, uh, to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi and Ruth, her daughter, uh, and Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go with this young, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest. Uh, the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, verse 22, we're cruising up on this. This thing's building, and we're about to. So we missed one, one, one spot where she's going to go into love story, right? She just went back to work and gleaned. But now Naomi understands. We weave it together. Here we go. This is the real big push towards love story. And Naomi said to her daughter, it's good that you go out with his young women, comma, right there, so that he notice you more, Right? So that he go out and you guys could figure this out and just spend some time together and be great. Yeah, in the completely unromantic version of this story as it's written, the rest of that sentence is, you can go out with his women lest you not be assaulted. Ugh. Like, how not romantic is that? <laughs> that just kills it right there. Why? Why is that the turn we take? Why don't we go to this bliss wonderfulness? And we don't even get there at the beginning of the next one, the next chapter. It's because the point is not a love story in Ruth 2. This entire thing is not driving. Yeah, we're introduced to some characters, but we don't want to flatten chapter 2. Verse 3 is going to move us, or chapter 3 is going to move us towards love story. And and verse 4 is going to move us to something even greater. But in verse 2, or in chapter 2, we're seeing that Ruth hears of the provision of the Redeemer. She hears of the protection. She hears of this promise. And she gets to work. And then when Naomi hears of this, she doesn't move towards something else. She says, hey, guess what? Looks like you can go to work tomorrow. The point that we are hearing in this as we receive the abounding love of God is that God delights when we delight in our work for his glory. That's where it's going. 
That's where it's driving to. Work is the entire thing that's happening here in chapter 2. There's this idea called vocation in some circles of, uh, of, of theology and some expressions of faith. Um, and this idea, it shows us that, that it's not simply what we get paid for that is our vocation, what we get paid for each day, but rather what job we go to, where we get our paycheck is one avenue, one opportunity, one realm in which we can live out this higher vocation of bringing glory, of extending God's love to the world around him. So if you've got pencils, I'm going to have you uh, write down a few verses here. God does this same thing for us. God's comforting promise to us. And, and the idea of comfort isn't just like you're, you're mourning and I'm going to comfort you there, there. It's this encouragement that in any season of our work, in any season of our life, we can have this encouragement because his promise to us is not glean in this field. It is, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's Old Testament way of saying uh, the New Testament version is, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Do you not remember I've brought you out of sin, the slavery of sin? This is what drives us every day, no matter where we're, if we're at our job or if we're at our home. And our vocation is to remember that God has a promise that is binding forever. In God's glorious provision, Christ gives himself to us as our satisfaction, and he changes our status to do so. Hased does not speak of your physical hungry, uh, hunger alone, but for your hunger of Christ. John, uh, John six thirty five. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. We can be satisfied in our work. We can be satisfied each day in Christ. But it's not just at this level of hunger. He moves us even beyond that. Uh, he moves us beyond physical means, physical uh, riches. He gives us that status we need to have access to this. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our own trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even though we were hopeless without God, he gave us hope. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up from the bottom of the status, from the distance, from the foreigner away from God. In his blood, he has raised us up with him and seated us at his banquet with him, where we will be satisfied Man, this thing is just cruising in the, the, the promises and the provision that God has given us. We are in a better spot than Ruth. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead without hope in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Your legal status doesn't matter anymore because of the blood of Christ. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers uh, and the authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I will take care of my sheep. I will take care of my field. They will eat and feed here. I have taken care of it. They have protection. Man, this is beautiful. We're not done. God's sovereign protection is there. While our status was hopelessness and even dead, 
Christ's death triumphed over our sin, our accuser, thus making a way for true salvation. True salvation is not from hunger. It is from the just wrath of God that our sin puts us there. And he says, no more. Because of your faith in my blood, you can thrive in the joy of the work before you each day. This is the bountiful work. I'm in the work of Ecclesiastes, and it's, it's well, the study is meaningless. I get it. Like, it's, it's, that's the whole theme, right? Um, but in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, the teacher, the one who's speaking all of these things, he describes exactly what this is, and he says that this is the gift of God, to delight in your work because you understand that God is providing abundantly for you, no matter what you do. You don't know whether this field will, will, will produce crop or this field will produce crop. You don't know if the evil will get rich or you will, you will get poor. But the gift of God is to delight in your work for his glory. What wise wisdom there is there. If the work of salvation has been accomplished through the blood of Christ and our receiving it is by faith as a gift, then I want to ask the question, what is our work now? This is all great. This is still up in the clouds a bit. What does this mean for us today? What does this mean of my work today? What is our work today? Our work is the same as Ruth's work. It's the harvest. We get to work at the harvest. Matthew 9, 37 through 38, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. My prayer always as a pastor is that God would send out laborers here at Heartland Community Church to go out into the fields of the harvest, that we might go naturally, just like it's nothing else, extend bountifully the abounding love of God in our community, that we might loyally cling to those around us, that we might endure through anything with those around us, and that we might extend Christ's bountiful love to those around us. God's said love is the behavioral norm for God's people. Let's make this normal for us. Let us live bountifully in the abounding love of God, focused on our Redeemer, displaying his abounding love throughout our community, in thought, in word, and in deed. And so I think it's, it's only uh, right for us to pray now for the workers of the harvest. Let's pray.